All right. Um, wow, I got to tell you, one of the hardest uh, or most difficult things um, is you, the build-up from, for Easter and um, then the kind of like mental crash that goes on with that. It's like, it's similar to Christmas, but Easter is all about the resurrection and you feel like you're focusing toward a direction. Um, next year, we have until the end of April. It's like around April 20th, I saw already. I'm already thinking about next year, um, about Easter already. So, you know, we, uh, I think there's only probably one or two um, Easter services ever that I've never talked about uh, the specific resurrection in itself. And um, because, I mean, that's what, that's what it all, all, it's all about. But today, so then the hardest thing is like, okay, God, now what next? Um, where do we go after here? And I just was looking around and just thinking and praying and trying to figure some stuff out. And I started thinking about messages. Um, we live in a time of messages. Um, we live in a time that uh, one of the things I heard at the college um, the other week is that now, college students don't check their email. They, and now they're, there's, they're looking at things to go ahead and have so that you can text people and get it to them immediately. How many of you have ever used text in this room? Anybody? How many use text now more than you use your email? Anybody? Okay. How many still use a lot of email, but usually you open it up and there's like 55 emails, and a lot of them junk, and you're just like, ugh. Okay, so that's one of the things that we're finding. We live in this kind of instantaneous message kind of deal. And I started thinking about messages over history, things that were important. And um, over the years, there are several people who had great messages. For instance, if I went ahead and said this, I have a dream. Who? Martin Luther King. Or what what about this one? Ask not what your country can do for you. JFK, John F. Kennedy. And here's this one. The only thing we have to fear. Who's that? Oh, come on. Keep going. FDR. Yeah. And it's interesting. One of the other things I thought is. Okay. No, you, don't, you don't remember? Okay. But one of the things I found out is all these people who have great messages also have initials. MLK, JFK. FDR, did you notice that? Um, but there are several of those. I could go into sports, and if I, if I went ahead and said, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant, those of you who like sports will recognize that was on Bob, um, Bobby Thompson's home run um, against the Pirates and all this other kind of stuff. So anyway, um, we have lots of different messages, and those things stick with us and carry with us throughout our lives. And so when I started looking at this, I thought about one of the greatest messages that has ever been given in the history, and this is one of the things that believers and non-believers look at alike, are, is the section known as the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. And I've never been really one because it, it, for a while there was very cliche to just go ahead and let's talk about the Beatitudes and let's do that. And now I just felt like I really wanted to get in because it's really about how how Christ really wants us to live. And I think one of the main challenges for the disciples before the day of Pentecost was how do we live without Jesus here? You know, Jesus ascends after a month or so, and then they go, now how do we do this thing? How do we do this here? And he had promised them the Holy Spirit. And if you look, they just kind of learned, they kind of taught, they kind of listened, 
they got together and they did like people do when we're in, in a group and we don't know what to do. They decide to have a committee meeting and vote people in positions. And that's what they did. When, and then they started praying. And when they prayed, then the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost fell. And it changed them um, completely. And so over the next few weeks, I want to just really dig into some sections about this. And in order to talk about the message, at least for today, I'm going to be using a translation that was given to me um, several years ago. It is a, a parallel Bible, which is two different translations, one with the NIV and one with the book, The Message, which is based, it's uh, a modern translation of the Old and New Testament text. And it was done by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who actually was a pastor at one point across the bridge in Hartford County. Um, and he, um, he compiled this. So we're going to use, so some of the scriptures may sound a little bit different to you, but one of the things I've done, if you look in your bulletin where you see highlighted in yellow, that is the New International Version, and I also have the message version printed in there, and it'll also be up on the screen, okay? So that's where we're going today. Where we end up next week, only God knows. Isn't it kind of fun not knowing where we're going? Um, kind of like my, my Christian journey. Not sure where I'm going, but I know God will get me there. So here we go. Um, let me just bring you some history here. With this Sermon on the Mount, uh, this is before Jesus' death, suffering, death, and resurrection, so we've got to go back. And Jesus is on, near the Sea of Galilee. Traditionally, people have had him on top of a mountain preaching downward, but m- more naturally and scientifically, he was probably at the bottom of this mountain preaching up to people because it works as a natural amphitheater. And so he's speaking to the people here. And as he's talking to them, he uh, shares many things. Many of these people were very poor. Many of them have been uh, casualties of the Roman government's taxation issue. But these were disciples and followers of Jesus. And when Jesus gave this 2,000 plus years ago, this was extremely, extremely controversial. And I believe it also is today. Because why is it controversial? Because Jesus begins to challenge his followers to think differently from those around us. And I hope that today, um, as we share how to be complete in the first couple sections of this, of the message, that we can go ahead and challenge ourselves to be complete. The world says, I'm in control. Um, and the more that I've lived in the world at my, in times of my life and tried to be controlling, I found out I have little or no control. And as I look at this, Jesus says, let me control. And that's so hard at times, isn't it? I've heard b- people in Christian traditions to say, let go and let God. Let's all say that together. Let go and let God. Look at the person next to you and say, let go and let God. Now that sounds good, but that is the hardest thing in the world. Isn't it? Anybody ever just tried to do that in life? Just let go? Say, oh, I'm letting go. And what do you do? You reach with the other hand for something, don't you? Um, And as we do that, we see some different things. So today we're going to look at this. Let's look at our scripture that uh, Debbie read for us today um, in the message version. And it starts off by saying Jesus dreads huge crowds. And let's look at verse verse 3 of chapter 5. When you're... He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. If you look in the uh, NIV, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make any sense to me. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. How many of you ever felt like you're at the end of your rope in life? 
Or at least you got really close to the knot that's near the end of the rope. Do you feel blessed at that point? Now, blessed is an interesting term. Blessed is more than just happiness. Blessed means that you have the favor and blessing of God. Now, I can tell you, as I look back on my life, I don't look at that and say, wow, I, you know, I barely have any money in the bank. I am so distraught, so depressed, so frustrated. Wow, praise God, I'm blessed. No, that's, that doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all in this world. But as we look at this, what does it mean to be complete? It's different from what the world says. So the first thing that we have to do that Jesus shares here is we have to admit that we are spiritually bankrupt or admit that we have spiritual bankruptcy. Everybody knows what bankruptcy is, am I right? Okay. What about spiritually bankrupt? Look again what it says here. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Why? Because at the end of my rope, I'm frustrated. At the end of my rope, I'm overwhelmed. At the end of my rope, I am just about ready to give up. Sound like anybody's end of rope? Anybody hanging on there with me at points in life? And it's those moments, you know, because what I've recognized is when I'm on the mountaintop and when my feet are sure and secure and everything's hunky-dory and the vats are falling over and I'm happy, that's when I can sing that I'm in right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. Whoever made that song is a very annoying individual. (laughs) Because do you know anybody who is in right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time? And if they are, you don't want to be around them for long. Because happy, happy, happy people are very annoying, annoying, annoying people. Because if you're like me, there's times, I woke up the other day and I just said, I am not in a good mood. And Melissa and I have worked on this deal that now we, I announce that to her. Because then we end up in this situation where I don't want to say anything. Because if I say something, I am going to create a lot of fire. Anybody with me here? And it has nothing to do with them, but woe to the one who is in the wake. You just wake up someday, and it's just like, I hate the world. And if you are in the world, you're part of that disaster. Rah! You know? It just is weird. You know, we have this joy of the Lord, but that moment, and then if those people come out, hey, hey, in a wonderful day, you're like, pop, you know? Or you just give them the look like, what are you to be happy about, you know? And we exist in these times many, many times. The thing that we see here is that it says, because when we are at the end of our ropes, when we are overwhelmed, when we are about ready to give up, that's when we're more ready to turn to Jesus. It's a shame that we have to get there at times. But you know what? I... I, a friend of mine told me this story about his cousin. He was a, an African-American pastor, this one up in, this friend of mine, up in Philadelphia. And right near Temple, if you know that area around there. He was right up near there. And he had a, his whole family were Christians. And he had this one cousin who uh, was, um, became Muslim. And it became a lot of tension in the family. Um, but they loved him through it. And... He told the story about his, how his cousin came back to, to Jesus. And he said, how'd that happen? He said, because he was going along one day and he got mugged. And the people were beating him up and mugging him. And he started crying out, help me, Jesus. You know what I mean? When we're at the end of a rope, that's when uh, everything else goes out the window and we hold on to what we know. 
is true to our lives. And he, he then became, went back to being a Christian and said, Jesus is the only thing that gave, kept him from killing me. You know what I mean at that moment? When we look at these things, what Jesus says is here. Because when we are at the end of our robes, then there is time for more of God and less of you. In other words, what that means is there's more room for God. From what I understand from people involved in AA and NA, is that the first step in AA or NA is to say, my name is Jack and I am powerless over my problem. One of the things we've got to realize is that we are spiritually bankrupt. Oh yeah, we have times like last week when the church is full and we're singing these songs, that that tank gets built up. But if we're holding on to that tank all week, it doesn't take long for it to get empty, does it? If we're holding on yesterday's, yesterday's blessings from God. We need to admit that we are powerless and need help. And in our society, when we admit that we're powerless and we need help, that's seen as a weakness, isn't it? But Jesus says, when you admit that you're powerless and you need my help, that is a strength. Several times in the scripture he says, for when I am weak, then I am made strong through Christ. There, there was a story about a man who went and spoke to a counselor. He went there and he said, I'm really down. I'm extremely depressed. I don't feel great about life. I just, I, I can't stand it. I'm just very down. And the man said, well, I got an idea. Why don't you go? There's a circus in town. And I heard there's this clown there. He is really funny and, and loves to bring joy. And the man said, well, here's the problem. I'm that clown. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we put it out there, but really deep inside we're falling apart. Because we feel like we got to keep it together. So the question I want to I ask you this is here today is ask yourself this question. What keeps me from needing spiritual help? What is it that keeps people from saying, I need help, God? And I'll tell you what the word is. Pride. Pride. We have pride. And we, don't, and we think that if we kneel before Jesus, this is why people say, this is the main problem why people say religion and faith is a crutch, because they have too much pride. And we all think we can do it on our own. But we can't, can we? And so we need to get before Jesus and just to go to him. Many in the world look at faith as a crutch. And in the self-contented society that says we don't have a need for God, that's why we have academic, epidemic proportions of alcoholism and drug addiction and criminals and murders and suicides more than any other generations. How's it working for us to be full of pride and to say we don't have a need for Jesus? You see, when we are at the end of a rope, there is more room for more faith and trust in God when we admit that we're spiritual bankrupt. I have this on your, on your sheet right underneath there. And I heard a pastor say this statement one time, and I think it fits very well. We can't be filled with God if we're already full of ourselves. Isn't that heavy? We can't be full of God unless we're already full of ourselves. We need to be filled with God and empty ourselves out of that. One of the greatest prayers I've learned to pray for myself has, God, empty me of all the stuff and fill me with your presence. Fill me with what you need. Uh, John Wesley used to had a Wesleyan prayer. I want you to look it up this week. He said, let me be used for thee or let me be set aside for thee. That was part of the prayer. How many times do we get up before we get up? We say, God, I want you to just empty me out. And I want you to take this day and not make it about me, but make it about you. You know, how do we, how do we capture this more? If we look at your bulletin, I put this verse all in there because I really wanted you to capture this. 
Anybody doing your taxes? Isn't this a happy time of year that we say, yay, right? For some of us. From us, you may, you may get back. That's good. I'm not one of them. Um, but, you know, if, if I said, hey, the IRS is coming over to your house for dinner, how many are you going? Praise God. I'm blessed. Um, you guys would be on the end of that rope, right? <laughs> Saying, holding on. And as we look at this, and you've heard me talk about the tax collectors during the time of Jesus, is that you had a re- the, the Roman government, then you had tax collectors, then you had other tax collectors, and everybody skimmed off of themselves. And by the time it got to the person, you were, you were just getting torn apart. And in Luke 18, 9, 9 through 14, it says, He told this story to some of those who were, listen to this word, complacently pleased with themselves. You ever know anybody who's complacently pleased, uh, pleased with themselves and their moral uh, performance? And they look down their noses at other common people. Anybody know anybody like that in your life? We may have been that person. Some of us may actually be that person here today. And he says, two people went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, which would have been the cream of the crop of the Jewish faith. And he, and listen to what it says. And the other tax man, who would have been the lowest of the low. And it says, the Pharisee, I love this, posed and prayed. He got himself in a prayer position. He's like, ah, time to pray. And he, he gets ready and he goes, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man who's praying right here. Isn't that interesting? He prays this. And then he, said, he tells all the great things that he does and did. And then meanwhile, look at verse 13 there. Meanwhile, the tax collector slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. When's the last time that you or I have really got on our face and prayed, forgive me, God, a sinner, spiritually bankrupt? Just say, my tank's done. I need you. I really, really need you. Jesus goes on and said, this tax man is the one who was made right with God, not the one who got all together. It was the tax man because it came from his heart. I loved how the Bible series did that and had Matthew or Levi right there and the Pharisee right there. It just really brought out something that I had never thought about in that. Um, what is it about this? So what, do we, what verse can we use from here? You can jot this down some other time. Proverbs chapter 3, um, verses 5 and the six, 6. This is from, you, you know it from the New International Version, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. In the message it says, Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen. Everybody say that with me. Listen. Listen for God's voice in everything you do and everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. When's the last time we really made it our our point to listen? Listen for God each and every day. As I said, many of you are bombarded. We are told that there are roughly um, 208 or 205 emails that people receive per day. Um, and we now live, receive more information in 72 hours than our parents or the generation before us um, received in a month. Um, 
what we found out is research is showing that our immediate information is addictive and exhaustive. One of the things that, how many people think you're a multitasker? Okay, well, I'm here to tell you. I think I am too, but studies show that what you are is a series of interruptions that waste more of your time than anything. What they have done, they've done studies that show that these massive emails, texts, everything, cost companies billions of dollars a year because we get started, something else happens, we stop, we go to something else, we come back, and we are wasting time more and more, and we are also causing ourselves to be addicted to immediate information. If you don't believe me, try this. Go stand someplace that's a huge line, like a restaurant. If you're in last or middle in line, they won't even acknowledge you, but walk a foot away and dial the number for the restaurant. And what will they do? Excuse me for a second. Can you hold on? Am I right? We live in that society now, that where we are. And so, when is the last time we've listened to God? There's, there's, I'm going to give you some applications. Remember our app series? Here's our application. And I want you to try to uh, apply this to your life. In what area of your life are you truly depending on God? What area of your life? That's on the top of the second sheet. So we have, that is, admit that we are spiritually bankrupt. The next thing that we need to look at here is, um, is our next section. We need to alter our behavior or our selfish behavior. We need to alter our behavior. Look at verse 4 that's here. You're blessed when you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then you can be embraced by the one most dear to you. Again, that makes no sense in the world. Look at, we like, many of you like the NIV. It says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Anybody in here ever mourned the loss of somebody who's special to you? Was that a point of joy for you? No. Did you feel blessed at that moment? No. Yet, and God's not saying rejoice and say yay. But what he's saying is, at those moments, you recognize that you can't trust in anything else but me. I look around the room and I see people that I've been with during times of loss. And many of you know that as, as much as you miss them, I was thinking this week about my, again, about my maternal grandmother. And my kids get, get these little chocolate bunnies now from my mom and dad. You know, and I remember even until like, I think the point that she died, I still, Jill and I still had those chocolate bunnies. I don't see them without thinking of her. As a matter of fact, her last Easter, she was at the church that I was at in Lewis, Delaware. And the kids and I had been somewhere and we found a stuffed bunny that looked like a cho- the chocolate Easter bunny, and we got it for her. And in the middle of that service, she ended up collapsing and having some issues. And I remember that. Um, And I remember carrying on, meanwhile, um, not recognizing it was going to be her last year. I see those things, and I miss them. But I know that it was God who was there to comfort me. I also know it's the Lord that she put a tremendous faith in that is the one that's going to have her greet me when I'm there with a big plate of dumplings. Slippery dumplings, not those big balls of, you know what I mean? Like slippery. Yeah, good stuff. And some squash fritters. Getting hungry? You would as soon as you saw her doing it. You know, I mean, it's just, that's going to be on my banquet table. I don't care what's on your banquet table. That's on mine in heaven. And I know that's the peace that passes all my understanding. It's the fact that my God is her God. And that's not only my grandmother, but she's my sister in Christ. The fact that 
um, that I'm going to see two children that I never got to hold. But I'm going to get to hold them in heaven. And they're going to hold me. That's exciting to me. It should be to us. But you know what happens in life? I'm selfish about my life. You see, mourning is not specifically just a loss, but it's a struggle over the sin that rules our lives. When something's taken away that I really like to do, that I know that's not right with God, I mourn over it. Well, I want, why can he do that? I want to do that. Come on, God. That's not fair. My kids do that. That's not fair. And what's my response? Life's not fair. Very good. Or if I'm really tired of arguing, I don't care. These are some of the things that we have. Our habits, our past have us bound and we mourn those things. In other words, we have a compassion or we often feel sorry for our sins. Parents, when your kids do something bad, horrible, they say something to you or somebody else, what do you want them to do or say when they've done something wrong? Sorry. One of the things that drove me crazy, I don't know which kid, but they reached a point they would not say they're sorry. And I went through this whole thing. I said, I don't care whether you leave this house and I'm an 80-year-old man and you're in your 60s or whatever age, you will always say you're sorry when you're wrong. Because that's the only way God brings healing is when we recognize that we're wrong. Too many people walk around and grieve and give reasons why they're not sorry in life. We should all be sorry for the pain that caused Christ's pain. So I want to ask you a question. There are several things that we mourn, but I want to ask you this question, and it's in your uh, bulletin. What is the most important thing to you? The most important thing to you, what is it in your life? And then compare that with the next question. What is the most important thing to God? I wonder if those things are together. In my life, I find out that, that it's not always together. You know, the thing most important to me, what is that thing you love too much? What I mean too much? That it distracts all your attention, takes everything that you have. A week after Melissa gave birth to Hannah, on her birthday, I went with a friend to the NFC Championship game. Yeah, go ahead and say, ooh, ladies, I got darts. You should have seen the darts I just got. You crazy? I brought home a present. And you know, when it was the one where the Eagles played Carolina, and they lost. After they lost, I realized I had to go home. And you know what I realized? After the Eagles won and won this, in the Super Bowl and all that stuff, when the Phillies won the Super Bowl, I realized all that stuff goes by the wayside. And what I realized is that my wife and kids should mean more to me than a football game. You know? Although it was a fun football game. Um... What's important to God? There are two things in the scripture that say God mourns over. That's how you can tell whether something's important to you. What are those things? He weeps and cries twice. That we can see in the scripture. Once was when the Jews had unbelief that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead. It says Jesus cried. He wept. You know what the next time it was? When he came into Jerusalem and he looked over Jerusalem. And he looked at the hardness of heart and said, How I would have loved to gather you. As a mother hand gathered checks. And it says he cried over Jerusalem. You see, God cries at those who are lost and don't care. Those that he wants to love and have part of his life. If you have your Bible, turn with me to James. 
not used to using this Bible, so you've got to bear with me. Um, James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. This is what James says here. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee for you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Listen to what it says here. It says here in the message. It says, and what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful willfully pride. God gives grace to the willingly humble. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud, no at the devil and watch him scamper. Let God's will work in, the, in your life. As you can see here on Acts chapter 3 verse 19, repent then and turn to God. What does repent mean? About face. Our military people here know exactly what that means. And it says here, That when you do repent, your sins may be wiped out. That at times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What's the app here? Ask yourself, in what areas do I need to repent? Turn and go away from and head toward God. What are those areas that I need to be and repent in? So that's one and two. Three is to achieve spiritual balance. Look at what the verse says here. You're blessed when you're content with just... With just, when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. In other words, what, what we used to do is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of earth. That's opposite of what we say. Meek in our society means weak. Like if you said, oh, you're really, the, the eagle's got a great linebacker, he's very meek. We're going to be like, hmm, here we go again. Isn't that what we're going to think? Why? Because meek is not a sign of strength in our society, but in God's it is. Let's look at why this is. Why is it that way? I'm going to tell you. Because the world focuses on power and possessions. Jesus says meek and content. What is meekness? Meekness is, and I have blanks here for you, meekness is strength under control. Like I can throw down if I want to, but if I let God control my life, then it takes a lot more strength to do that. Contentment, so that's, that's meekness. Our strong will under the control of God. Contentment is not complacency that we think in. Contentment is, is peace in spite of our circumstances. I can guarantee I could go around the room and everybody in here has something you're not content with. Your job, your relationship, your finances... You're whatever. Everybody's got something, don't you? And it's probably because the circumstances around it have us on shaky ground. But when we are content, we allow God's spirit to come into our lives, and that allows us to be peaceful in the midst of circumstances. I can't tell you how many times and how much energy I have wasted in my life by not being content with what God has for me. And when I do have something, I want more. I want more, and I want more, and I want more, and I want more, and I want more of that. And guess what? The more I want, the less content I become. You've heard me say this before, but remember when Tide took out the stains that nothing else did? Then why the heck do I need new improved Tide? 
Could someone explain that to me? And if Tide and New Improved Tide were doing what they were doing, why do I need OxyClean? Somebody explain that to me. Because I want. Because, I, I mean, when I was a kid, they had a list of everything it took out. It hadn't changed that much. But maybe it just didn't do what it was supposed to. Maybe I'm lied to. Maybe I just spend my time thinking about things that aren't important. Right? <laughs> Which is, a, there's a good chance of that as well. Um, Psalm 37, 11 says this. The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. The meek will uh, inherit the land and enjoy peace. I challenge you this week to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. It talks about living and learning to be content. You know, one of the things I, I look at is I like shirts and I like clothes. I do. I just, I just like them. And I like, my favorite store in the world is Marshall's. I love it. I'm addicted to Marshall's. Anybody else addicted to Marshalls? I love it. It's like, I walk in there, I'm like, hallelujah, you know. And, and people for Christmas just gave me Marshalls cards. And I was like, yes, 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 you know. Oh, I don't need that, but I want it, you know. And I'm in there. And the other day, usually I just come home and I have my shirts all like thrown all over the place in the couches. And the other day I went and I actually put them together and I said, I have like 10 blue shirts. Who needs 10 blue shirts? Me, obviously, Right? But I want them because I see them like, oh, I like that. Oh, I like this. And I forget what I have back in the back of the closet because I want this. You know, there's so much that my kids have that I didn't have. So much that I want to give them that they don't need. And the main thing in life, we just need to make sure that our kids and that we know Jesus more than a shirt or something else. What is the app in this one? In what areas of your life? I want to ask this question. In what areas of your life do you need balance? That's what it's about, right? Balance in our life. Number four, coming down the home stretch here. The last thing that we need to do is to attack injustice. To attack injustice and secular beliefs. Look at the verse that says here. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. Or as we're used to, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're probably even more hungry than I was talking about chicken and dumplings and little pecan pie. Mm-hmm. Okay, keep going. Okay, uh, or, or like if I get the, you know, I love pizza. Pizza. Isn't that great? Like, just not, I'm not talking that, that like, grilled cheese that they call white pizza. I'm talking like dripping, like spaghetti sauce, pizza sauce. You know what I mean? With all kinds of stuff on it. Or you can even mix it and make like a buffalo chicken pizza. Yeah, yeah. Sound good? Am I getting there? There we go. Yeah. See? Hallelujah. You guys are ready now. And I could make you so hungry. Or that smell that you have when it's just before Thanksgiving dinner of the stuffing and that turkey. Right? Or like when you break into the crust of that, those marshmallows that hard on the top of the sweet potatoes. Yeah, you're getting it now. Or you walk in and you know where Chris and the gang have prepared some really good stuff. You know what I mean? And you're hungry. And you know, just sometimes like food. Or some of you like to smell the popcorn. It makes you eat, hungry for it. Or 
fried onions, cheese steak. Right, I got you hungry now. Now you're ready. And, and you're like, hmm, what am I going to eat? Oh, I'm going to stop by. Oh, yeah, yeah. So tell everybody, all the restaurants in the area to tithe since I helped them out. Um, but we're hungry. And if I start having like a big, like, you know, homemade, like dripping stuff down your arm, burger that just is like, ah, you're not going to be satisfied with like, you know, like something you pull out of a box and stick it in the microwave, right? You want, you want that dripping in there? I got a new, we had to get a new grill because ours burnt out. And I can't wait to like, ha, 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 ha. You know what I mean? It's got, it's, it's got a gas burner here. It's got charcoal here. And you can even buy a smoker. One of these times I'm going to have them all running, just flip burgers and ha, 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 you know? Like, I am king of the world, you know? Because there's something about a grill and just stuff on it. But when we're hungry, when we're hungry, we can't focus on anything else but eating, getting a chance to eat. You ever realize how when we sit down at the Thanksgiving table, it takes hours and hours to do, but by the time we throw it all down, we feel miserable, we're full, and we're like, ugh. And it takes like five minutes. But what about our appetite for God? You see, the term secular means this. It means earthly, temporal, and mundane. And it used to be up until about the last 20, 30 years, the church set the standard for society. Now, now we live in a time where the world is setting the standard for the church. I don't know what's happened. What's happened? In society, we look at certain things. Here's what society seeks after. They seek after achievement. They seek after, after abundance. And they seek after acceptance. Achievement is where you reach a level and you can say, here I am. And that's not a bad thing. But if that's what we're seeking after above all things, we may have, I talked about that the other week, about how we seek that even over, over our, our families. Something's wrong there. Or abundance, where we want more and more and more. Or acceptance where we don't want to be different for Jesus. We don't want to stand out as Christians. We want to assimilate in, and if they find out, then we'll tell them, maybe, about who Christ is. But what does Jesus say we should seek after? Righteousness. We don't like that term. Righteousness is the willingness to be set apart. The willingness to be set apart. Turn with me, if you will, to it's Acts and then Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. And it says... The NIV. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, you were a mere man, you pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? What is it saying there? We need to fit in. Without, it's that, what this, it, the, the uh, message translation, which I think, is it up here? Did I put it up there? Go ahead and put it up there. I want you to look at this translation. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you. 
is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become, look at this, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't become so adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. He'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize he, what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down because it's level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. You know, again, if somebody... Was, ha- was going around arresting people for being Christians, would they come to your door and arrest you? Would they see you at your place of work and arrest you? Would they, if they were in need and hurting, would they come and confide in you? A lot of times we just assimilate so much, we don't stand out as Christians. And that's heavy for me. The disciples, after the resurrection and after the day of the Pentecost, they stood out, didn't they? And they changed the world. How do we stand out? Our attitude needs to be the attitude of Christ. And where does that come from? From the words of Christ. We need to get in the word. And so in this last app for you today, as the praise team comes forward, in what areas of culture and community do we need to confront? Today, a group shared that they're feeding people in our community. We need to confront that. We need to confront injustice where it's just wrong, where it's just wrong that we just don't love people that we treat people horribly. You, you say, Jack, okay, where can I confront this? Here we go. Look at yourself and ask yourself, what is wrong in the society around me and what do I, does God say is wrong and what do I need to confront that with the love of Christ? Now, I'm going to tell you, if you go hit somebody up, here's what Christians are really good, bad about, we're really good about doing. We go up to somebody, hit them in the head with a Bible and convince them that they're sinful and we're not. And guess what? That doesn't win anybody to Christ. It doesn't share the love of Christ. But we go to them in love and say, hey, I want to share this with you. You know what I found out this week? I found out less than 20% of all Americans attend church. Regularly. And regularly now means maybe two weeks or one, one or two weeks a year. I'm a, a month. You see, this message that Jesus gave was radical. Because everything he talked about there, we like to read it. Blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those who do that. But guess what? If we really, really apply that to our life, it's a radical shift in the way we've all been living. Am I right? Jesus said it. It's a good teaching, but a good teaching doesn't mean anything unless we apply it to our lives. Okay? So I'm going to pray. Lord God, I just thank you for our time here today on this low Sunday um, that is historic. And we are all a little bit like Quasimodo, half formed in your image. And so, God, I just ask that you'll continue to form us in your image and continue to renew us and just press us, God, when it comes to the times that we look at and, uh, and we hear and say poetically, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, those who are persecuted, blessed are this, that, God, we recognize that what it's all about is being coming complete and having more of you in our lives and less of ourselves so that we can go ahead and achieve... A, a, an amazing thing through our lives in serving you. For that, we give you praise. We know there's all kinds of emotions and differences here today, but God, ultimately, we know that you love us, and that's what matters. And so, God, as we take this time, I'm going to ask the people to stand, and we're just going to focus on the song, and if we need to come to the altar, we're going to do that. For your God, and we need you. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand.